Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Ah, thank you, B.B. That's my daughter, B.B., bringing her dad, Shannon Riley, in for another episode of Shannon Shakespeare Sundays right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 785Live, 785.com. I am very excited to be here again today and uh, to enter us into some more wonderful times with Shakespeare. I want to remind everybody that uh, my name is Shannon Riley. I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I'm just a Shakespearean fanatic. I love to talk about all things Shakespeare. I've read a lot. I enjoy sharing what I know. And uh, I, as always, want to hear from you. So... If you'd like to talk to me, if you have an idea for a series of uh, uh, episodes or a question, please let me know at ShannonJRiley.com. Uh, Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y, ShannonJRiley.com. Uh, that's my website. I'd love to hear from you. And then peek around there and see if you want to uh, read any of my plays. I'd love to send plays out, too. Um, Today, we're getting very, very close to Christmas here, uh, and I thought, you know, I'm going to do a very special Christmas episode next week, uh, but I wanted to get ready for that because, you know, we've been focusing a lot on Shakespeare and his company and his uh, time growing up, but I haven't really talked that much about the people Shakespeare was writing for. If you remember, if you've been listening to uh, my podcast, you know that I truly do believe that you have to consider Shakespeare in the time in which it was written. You can't just decide uh, that uh, Shakespeare was a contemporary artist and, and really read his work with a contemporary eye. You have to keep in mind the time in which he was writing. And today, I'm going to focus on the people he was writing for. Who were Shakespeare's audience? What was Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth in England like. And so we're going to be focusing on that today. Uh, but first, as always, we do our normal things. And the first thing is this. And now the Shakespeare quote of the week. And the Shakespeare quote of the week is, the web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. From As You Like It, Act 4, Scene 3. And by the way, that lovely voice I brought in the quote of the week, my boy Finn. So thank you, Finn, for helping me out on that. And also, it's time for... And now, the Shakespeare Book of the Week. Finn again, and this is the Book of the Week. And, you know, I've done a lot of critical essay books, uh, biography books. I've told you a lot about those. I have a lot on my shelf. Um, But I have even more reference books because I'm kind of a reference geek nerd. Um, But some of these books are really, really valuable, particularly if you're going to be doing Shakespeare, that uh, you can get a clear idea of what's expected of uh, Shakespeare and how to speak it, how to read it, how to understand it. And this first book, this is a reference book called 
Who's Who and What's What in Shakespeare by Evangeline M. O'Connor. Um, it's a rather old book. It actually had a copyright of 1978. I happen to have the updated 2000 version. Uh, it's very full. You know, I have other reference books. I have books that break down a lot of his plays and break down characters and things like this. This is simply like a dictionary. If you know the name, you can look it up. If you know the location, you can look it up. And it gives you a quick, concise uh, definition of who is who and what is what in Shakespeare. Um, and I like that it's kind of a compact little book. It's a book you can fit in a briefcase easily or throw it in a backpack. I've taken it to many rehearsals, um, and actors find it a very useful to tool. So if you can find it, Who's Who and What's What in Shakespeare is a really, really good book, and I hope you check it out. It's also time for the Shakespeare Fun Fact. That was me this time. Um, and the Shakespeare Fun Fact, I think, is a rather interesting one because I wanted to tell you about the Elizabethan audience and what they were like, what they, uh, what Shakespeare was writing for. But I think this is a really interesting fun fact, and that is that Shakespeare's alphabet was not exactly the same as ours. It had only 24 letters. So he wrote all this beautiful poetry with two less letters than we have. That's right. In Shakespeare's time, in the Elizabethan period, uh, the alphabet was only 24 letters. The letter I and J were considered the same letter. J was used and capitalized when uh, it was started a word, but if it was inside the word, it was a small I. And the same with the letters U and V. If it was a letter inside the word that needed a U sound, they use a U. If it was at the top of uh, the word they used a capitalized V. So um, he had only 24 words. And the other interesting thing about that is they didn't use TH for the the sound. Um, they didn't have that. Instead, they used a Y, and that meant th. And so when you see ye old bakery, it really means the old bakery um, because the Y was representing the th sound. I love saying ye old all the time too, but it's, it's just plain wrong. That's not how it was pronounced. So, there's your Shakespeare Fun Fact of the Week. Alright, so, I wanted to start off by talking about the Elizabethans and what their life was like. And it's important, really, to start before the Elizabethan period because it was a, a very turbulent thing that changed the world forever. About two weeks ago, I did a whole episode about the plague and the plague and how it was a part of Shakespeare and Elizabethan's life, and, and that was very true. But the plague started in the Middle Ages, and as devastating as it was, and as destructive as the plague was, it brought about an amazing change to Europe, and that was the birth of the middle class. See, before the plague, lords owned wide stretches of land and, and peasants worked it and they had to do what the Lord said and they had to eat what the Lord told them to eat and if he rode by on his horse and said I needed your son for a campaign in Scotland your son was going to Scotland to fight a war so there was absolute control over the peasant class by the nobility but after the plague and so many people died, there weren't enough peasants to work the fields. And in some cases, there were villages and whole swaths of land left without lords. They all died off. So as a result, the middle class was born in Europe. And they started to buy land. And they started to be in control of their own land and in control of their own destiny. So by the time Elizabeth took the throne, by the way, 
The Elizabethan period that I'm talking about is between 1558 and 1603. Um, that was her reign of England, the second longest reign of any monarch in London, or in England. But during this period, there was a vast change. Uh, there was a renaissance and a, a, a golden age that developed in England. And a part of it was this rise in the middle class that uh, started in the Middle Ages, but it took quite a while to get up to speed and quite a while before there were people who were no longer living in fields. They were living in towns and in villages and moving from place to place on roads. So they had a bit more autonomy. They weren't necessarily in a feudal system by the time Elizabeth becomes queen. Now, when we think of the Elizabethan period, we think of nobles, very colorful people, uh, extravagant, riding around on horses with banners and great parades of knights. Well, that was true. There were people like that, but it was about 3% of the population in England, 3%. The rest were middle-class and lower-class people, people who very often didn't know how to write. And so very few diaries are left, very few really written publications exist about that middle-class and about that younger or that uh, lower, poorer class. So without those distinctions, we make a lot of guesses about life in Europe, but there's some things you can really, really see. Now, the vast majority of people in London, or in England, I'm sorry, during this reign, were incredibly poor. The middle class was a very small subset. But during Elizabeth's reign, the middle class grew exponentially. And so you started to see the lower classes actually having something that they had never had before, and that was a track to upward mobility. You even see this in Shakespeare, who starts out as the son of a glover, who goes to London as a playwright, becomes the toast of London, and ends up being listed as a member of the gentry and nobility and allowed to wear a crimson cloak, has a coat of arms attached to him. That sort of thing wouldn't happen without the changes that happen among Elizabethan England and the rise of that middle class. Now, there's very little historical record to show how hard this lower class lived, but nevertheless, we can extrapolate quite a few things. First of all, we know how the nobility lived, what they wore, because they're in all kinds of portraits that were done at the time. Very few portraits were done of a blacksmith or a guy who worked the fields. Uh, they wouldn't have had time to do it anyway. So the peasant life was kind of a lost idea. We see it in movies and we see it expressed so we think we know what it is, but really this ability to imagine what it might have been like is quite could have been quite different. In fact, there's some evidence that, uh, particularly in the middle class, they worried more about cleanliness than we give them credit for. And there was a, a wide variety of fragrances and soaps that were developed uh, for the middle class. So that's pretty amazing. But with the plague creating this idea of a middle class, they were able to go on and prosper. And it also changed the dynamic. If you had peasants buying land and towns sprouting up, there was less land to work and less things for the peasants to do. So where did they go? Well, they went to the larger cities, and particularly London, which was the largest city on the entire island. And people went there in droves. Many of them remained penniless once they got there. It was hard, hard existence to live in. But there was a vast growth in one particular industry at this time, and that was cloth. English cloth, English wool became the standard in continental Europe. It was the greatest commodity England had, and Europe was dying for it. They paid a pretty penny for it. 
So suddenly, you had all these sheep being raised in England and Scotland, and all of these areas needed to be penned up, so it left even less land for the peasants or the lower class to work. So when the fences went up, the cities got bigger and bigger and bigger, and new industries were born. At a time when you had to take care of everything yourself for your family, you had to bake the bread, you had to make the beer, you had to shoe the horse, suddenly you had slight businesses growing up, bakeries, glove makers, or even uh, blacksmiths. So there was suddenly a growth of cottage industries where people could make a living doing something that wasn't agrarian. They could do something that with their hands. They could even create crafts. The gloves that they wore at the time, men particularly wore, were incredibly ornate. And John Shakespeare, William Shakespeare's father, was a, a very well-to-do and well-paid-for glove maker at one time. So there was an amount of cash that was now available even to the middle classes to spend on, well, things to make you feel better about yourself. So the thing about this also led to kind of a population explosion. When Elizabeth took the crown, there were 2.8 million people living in England. By the time she died, there were 4.1 million. Now keep in mind, this is at a time where plague was popping up constantly, killing thousands and thousands of people. So even though the plague would come up about every two, three years and take out 40,000 here, 20,000 there, decimate this village, ruin this uh, type of um, area of town, they would fill back up with people. People were being born and people were coming to England. And suddenly, London became the center of the great renaissance in Northern Europe. Now, after the birth of the middle class, business people started becoming the thing that you needed to be. An understanding of business, of math, of math, um, taxes, and, and how to just survive as a businessman. So what that meant was education was at a boon. Now, the rate of illiteracy in London when Elizabeth took over was incredibly high. But by the time she left, uh, or passed away, I should say, literacy had grown immensely in London, and it grew in a variety of different ways. In the countrysides, you had schools being set up, schools being set up by local villages, schoolmasters being brought in from university to take over these schools, and these schoolmasters were giving complete autonomy. It would, they would beat their children, They would, and, and school was hard. You had to go from 7 a.m. to about 6 p.m. Uh, you got a two-hour break for lunch in which you had to go home, and you went six days a week. The only time they had off from school was, of course, in the summer when it was time to do crops or work the farm. So you had a great many of people coming in and working and, and, and learning in these small schools. In the cities, the tutors came to you, particularly if you were well off. Very advanced tutors from the universities would be hired to come in and work with nobility's children and teach the children. And this includes boys and girls. So literacy rate among girls grew quite a bit, which is why I've always maintained, I do believe that Shakespeare's mother and his wife were probably illiterate their entire life, but both their daughters learned how to read and write. And it was important to Shakespeare that both Suzanne and Judith could comprehend and write. So this was the growing rate of um, uh, literacy in, in Europe. As a matter of fact, it... London grew to around 200,000 people at the time when uh, Elizabeth was queen. And of that 
800,000 people, 65% could read and write. This was the crowd Shakespeare was writing for. So I'm going to take you more through the Elizabethan life after this short break. I thank you all for finding me right here at KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live, 75.com. We're going to be back after this short break. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KCEF Digital Radio 75 Live 75.com. It's a pleasure to be here with you. My name is Shannon Riley, and this is Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, where I work very hard to try and keep everybody barred to the bone. I like to celebrate the works of the greatest writer who ever lived, William Shakespeare, once a week right here on KSEF, and I'm happy to have you along for the ride. We were talking about Shakespeare's audience. That's the title of this week's podcast is Shakespeare's Audience, and so I want to give you a clear idea. So I'm going to uh, pretend we're in a time machine. Can you hear it working? And I'm going to take you back, and we're now going to ride in to London. So get aboard the ox cart, and here we go. All right, first of all, as we're riding up to London, you got to cross the London Bridge to enter into the city. And what you're going to see above your head are pikes everywhere with heads of traitors on it. This was a police state, and if uh, Elizabeth found out you were possibly a traitor to the realm, that's where your head would go and it would hang there until it rotted and fell into the water. There are accounts of the ride into London being absolutely not only dreadful and horrific, but smelly. Now, as we come into the bridge, you're going to pass into the street where you're gonna find a very crowded avenue. There were people everywhere, and the smell wasn't any better. Open sewage um, in the streets. Uh, Livestock was around in London, even though it was a big city. Keep in mind that all the inns and all the taverns, many of them held on to livestock so they could have fresh meats and fresh eggs and dairy to serve their patrons. So there were livestock everywhere, plus there were horses everywhere who weren't necessarily careful about where they did their duty. So as you ride into London, it was a very cramped and uh, packed city. Okay, so we're going to get off the horse here for a second because I want to talk about the people you're going to see. First of all, the life expectancy of anybody living in England was about 42 years. Not a great lifespan, but um, there are many, many people who lived to a very ripe old age. Shakespeare's father himself lived into his 70s, so did one of his sisters. So... But a lot of people in London were very, very poor, very poor. And um, so poor is the fact they passed a few poor laws. And the poor laws punished those people who were poor. Now, not all. They had what was called the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. The deserving poor were the elderly, orphans, people who were sick, people who were wounded, maybe missing a limb. Uh, These people were considered deserving poor, and they were left to the church to take care of. The church was charged with the idea of taking care of London's poor, so collection boxes were the only way that the poor were being served. Now, if you were an able-bodied man, you were the undeserving poor. Anybody else was the undeserving. And if you were found to be in a a poor person, that is somebody who could not prove that they had a home, a residence, a a address, or a place to work, then you were considered in violation of the poor laws. These vagrants were often beaten, they were humiliated, they were marched through the streets, and then eventually thrown from the city. So it was a very tough place to be if you were poor, and you worked hard to hide the fact that you were poor. There was also a lot of petty crime, pickpockets, 
a prostitution, a lot of crime that the poor would turn to just out of desperation. And as I mentioned before, there were some bright spots to Elizabeth's reign. First of all, when she took the reign, one fifth, only one-fifth of the people in London could read. By the time she passed away in 1603, one-third of the population could read, and that's even girls. The rich educated at home, and as I said, uh, in the countryside, people were attending schools that were put up by their own schools. That's how Shakespeare got his learning. Now, girls pretty much stayed in a petty school, learned how to read, write, and then they went home. Uh, From there, they would be taught by their mothers or aunts or other women in the uh, household the art of being a woman, how to sew, how to knit, how to cook, and how to take care of livestock and brew beer. These were the jobs of the women in the house. Boys, if they had money, and if their family had wherewithal, as Shakespeare's did when he was younger, they went on to what they called grammar school, what we would consider upper grammar school and high school. There they were taught Latin. They were taught to read the Bible. They were taught a lot of classics like uh, Ovid's and Metamorphosis. So these things were incredibly available to Shakespeare at the time. And then if they had money by the time they finished that, they could go to university. And universities were filled with people, all men, who were learning the greatest disciplines of the time. Shakespeare didn't have a chance to do that. There's something else that I think is really interesting. I mentioned the poor laws. They also had what was called the sumptuary laws. And the sumptuary laws, when I first found out about this, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. But the sumptuary laws were about what you could wear. Seriously. They did not want the classes to mingle. And if they had an idea that the classes were mingling, then they would make sure that um, uh, that was broken apart. So they did it by glance. What you wore said who you were. For instance, only the nobility, only the royals could wear purple and only the nobility could wear gold. So gold went to the earls and and, uh, dukes and so forth. Royals wore gold and purple. Uh, You could have fur trim on your outfits if you were of the nobility. You couldn't if you were not. You had to wear very basic cloths in very dim colors. They wanted it very clear who it was. As a matter of fact, there was a time where they had to pass a sumptuary law against actors because actors would be given these really expensive and beautiful clothing for the theater from the benefactors or they would make it. And then the actors would wear it in the street. It became such a bad problem of actors being mistaken for being royalty that they had to <laughs> they had to pass a law saying actors could not appear in the street in costume. Now, the rich also, as you can imagine, ate better. They ate beef, mutton, pork, venison, rabbit. They got meat. Uh, you didn't get very much meat when you were poor unless it was a very lesser meat. Cat, dog, rat whatever you could possibly catch. Uh, The meats for the rich were often cooked in fruit, and fruit was also, fruit and vegetables were a rare commodity. They were hard to get a hold of in the city. Uh, You could get them in the countryside, but they were really hard to get a hold of. The thing I wanted to say about the meat too is that the meat was very valuable and they held onto it even though they had no refrigeration. So there was a high use of salt and spices to cover the taste and smell of spoiled meat when you ate in uh, the inns of London. 
Now, the poor had very few vegetables, as I mentioned, um, practically no fruit, certainly not in the city. They survived off of bread, eggs, and dairy, which, again, relates to the fact that there are all these chickens that were in London and ducks and geese so that they could have this constant supply of eggs and, of course, cows for milk. And they baked a lot of bread and they baked a lot of uh, brown bread. The rich would have a very white, fluffy bread, but the, the poor subsisted off of a very dry brown bread made of rye and barley and families lived together they lived together in large units brides would move in with the in-laws unless their son had his own home very often though you married young so you ended up living with your in-laws at least for a while and that was certainly the case with shakespeare but families were blended they lived close together with each other they helped raise each other's children and you were expected to marry. Male and female were expected to marry. It was often an arranged marriage, and it was just expected of you get married and have children. Now, it was terrifying for girls if they went beyond a certain age and they had not married yet. And I cannot help but think of Anne Hathaway, who was so much older than Shakespeare, and how terrified she might have been that she was never, ever going to marry in the first place. So you were expected to marry. Divorce and separation were unheard of completely. So these are some of the neat things about the families or the the, the audience of Shakespeare. Now, the Shakespeare's audience would rush to the theater. It was the most gratifying escape that they could hope for from the bustle and uh, busy, hot workings of the city. And the theaters would run in droves. It costs a penny to get in to see a Shakespeare show, but as much as that is, a penny was more than the average poor person made a day. So it was really a strong investment to move in and see a show. It costs a penny to see a show, a penny more to sit on a bench, and a penny more to have a cushion. So this was at a very expensive venture. When Shakespeare's company moved into the Blackfriars, they were indoors. It cost up to five pennies in order to get into those shows because it was a limited audience and you were out of the weather and everybody got a chair or a bench. So it was a much different life once we moved into the Blackfriars and indoor theater, which happened late into the 16, uh, well, early 1600s, around 1604, 1605. The audience was educated. Not all of them, but for the most part, they could read. And they read Shakespeare like crazy. They read his sonnets. They read his poems. And when a play was published, they went out and bought it and read that as well. Shakespeare was a rock star during this time. That was Shakespeare's audience in a nutshell. I hope you enjoyed the trip. Now, next week, I'm very excited because it's almost Christmas. So I thought it's time to do an Elizabethan Christmas special with the music, the stories, and the customs that went with it. There was no time celebrated greater in the Elizabethan calendar than Christmas. It was, in fact, it was celebrated for 12 days, all the way up to 12th day, a festival that Shakespeare wrote a play for. So next week... I'm going to take you Christmas time in the Elizabethan period, and we're going to have a great, great visit. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I want to thank once again KSEF for letting me have this time uh, to share with you my love for Shakespeare. Please come back and see me again next week. And as always, keep it barred to the bone.